Okay, Bibles, I invite you to grab them and turn with me to the book of Romans once again. I hope that you have not grown tired or weary through our study in Romans. Uh, we, there are 16 chapters, and here we are in chapter 8, so we are just barely crossing the halfway point. Um, so we are still in it for quite a while, but Romans 8, um, we've been in it for the last several weeks. If you've been with us, you, you know this, and... And this morning we are looking at verses 18 through 25, but I want to continue doing what we've been doing since starting this chapter and, and reading to you from the very first verse of the chapter. Uh, maybe it's just me, I don't believe that it is, but I just can't get enough of Romans 8. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna read to you from Romans 8 beginning in verse 1 and read all the way through to verse 25 where we will focus our, our attention this morning. So look with me at Romans 8 beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who, walk, who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, help us as we come to your word this morning. Help us to see, help us to to believe, help us to hear, help us to know. Uh, May your word be magnified and celebrated and proclaimed this morning. And that as it is, you would be glorified. You have given us these words. So, Father, we pray and we ask that what we do not know, you would teach us. What we do not have, you would give us. And what we are not, that you would make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, I hope that you are and have been encouraged by this study in Romans over the last year. I I hope even more so that over these last few weeks, as we've been in Romans 8, that you have been encouraged as we've been looking at the assurances of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul began the chapter with this proclamation that there is therefore now no condemnation. And then he issued a, a promise that life is given to us and worked in us by the Spirit of Christ. The same Spirit of Christ that raised Christ from the dead. And we have this, this beautiful, uh, loving picture of God the Father adopting us as His children. Making you heirs to His throne, to His kingdom. Fellow heirs with Christ. I mean, there, there's so much already in Romans 8 for us to just sit in and stop and, and celebrate. Isn't that what we could, we could spend our entire Christian lives in Romans 8 and never reach its bottom. And we could celebrate it and love and embrace the promises and the assurances of, of the gospel of Jesus. And at the same time, while we, we know that all of this is, is well and good, and we have assurances that these promises are true of us now, and that they will be true for all eternity, there's still something missing, isn't there? There's still something lacking in this life. Because we, we still feel the, the brokenness of this world. You and I, together, we still suffer here and now. And it's, it's good for us as believers to, to gather on Sundays and to, to put the smile on, to sing the hymns, to celebrate the gospel, to partake in communion together, and to be filled with the joy of fellowship as we embrace and worship together. But if the gospel doesn't speak to the physical, emotional, social sufferings of this life, then it is useless until we reach eternity. Let me me say that again. If the gospel of Jesus Christ does not provide a path through the midst of suffering today, then it is useless for us today. 
And we can close our eyes and we can pretend that life isn't that difficult, that suffering isn't that severe, that trials are not that terrible. But it would be a lie, wouldn't it? You see, if I, if I stood here every week and, and simply just gave you empty platitudes about how great the Christian life is, how, how blessed we are to be believers, how wonderful the life of a Christian is, then the moment that you step outside this room and are confronted with suffering, real, tragic, heart-wrenching suffering, the first thing to get tossed out the window on the car ride home is the gospel of Jesus. It's the Bible. Even Christ is thrown aside. But I I won't do that. I, I can't do that. Because the Bible doesn't do that. What we have in the gospel is the assurance that even in the face of horrific suffering, you and I as believers, we have hope. What we have is this hope, and not in the sense of wishing, as in I I hope I win the lottery, or I hope things work out for me. We have this certainty, this anchor on which to ground our ships, this bedrock on which we can build our life around. So that no matter how great the storm and no matter how unsteady the ground around you, there is this firm foundation of hope on which you can and should and must stand. This morning as we continue through the study of Romans 8, Paul's discussion of these assurances in Romans 8, they take a turn. And it's a turn that he doesn't undo for the rest of the chapter. He he has laid out for us the blessings that come to us in Christ by the Spirit through the Gospel. And now he turns his attention to why these blessings matter as we suffer. And this theme of suffering undergirds the the rest of chapter 8. As Paul wants to remind you that no amount of suffering can take away these promises. And no amount of suffering can, can remove you from the grip of the Father, can remove you from God's love for you. No amount of suffering can ever touch you if you belong to Christ. And so as we embrace this turn of chapter 8, I, I, want, to, I want you to see this morning from these first few verses, or just from these verses 18 through 25, is... I really just want you to see two truths, two headings to kind of guide our discussion this morning. First is the horror of suffering, and second is the hope of suffering. The horror and the hope of suffering. And so as, as, we, as we begin, I, I, let me just remind you again, it's been a few weeks since I have, let me r- encourage you to keep your Bibles open throughout the sermon. Because I want you not just to take my word for it that these things are there. I want you to be able to see in Paul's writing that the things that I'm telling you are actually there. I want you to see it for yourself. So keep your Bibles open. And as you have your Bibles there open in your lap, I know that our focus is 18 through 25. But do me a favor and take one step back to the end of the verse that we ended last week. And so if you were here, you you remember. But if not, let me remind you. We, we looked at last week that Paul states that in the Spirit, we who believe have been adopted as sons and daughters. Not slaves to fear judgment and wrath, but we are sons and daughters of the King. And with this adoption, 
Paul says that we have this, this wonderful intimacy now with the Father, that we can call him Abba, which means Daddy or Papa, and that we can come to him and we can be heard. And not only do we have this intimacy with the Father, we now share in this inheritance of the Father that comes with being a child of God, that we are an heir of God. Which means that we are, if, if we are heirs and children of God, then we are fellow heirs with Christ, who is the Son of God. And now look at with me at, at verse 17. I, we, didn't, we didn't talk about this last week, but I, I need you to see it there this morning. Because Paul says, if, children, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. All great things, all great promises. But look at what comes next. Provided, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See that word provided there? That, that is a word of condition. It is, it is Paul saying that you will receive all of this inheritance as sons and daughters of the king, but only if, provided if, on the condition of your suffering. This passage would be so much better if that word provided wasn't there, wouldn't it? Because what Paul is saying is that you get all of these things, that you truly are adopted as God's children, that you are inheritors to the kingdom of God, it will be yours. But only if you suffer. And so it's probably helpful for us to, at this point to, to, to understand what Paul means by suffering. So that we can better understand this conditional statement that he gives us. And so he says in verse 18, he refers to them as the sufferings of this present time. So when Paul says that provided we suffer, he is talking about the suffering that exists in this world, during this age, at this time in history. It is the suffering of living in a broken creation. And he elaborates. I mean, he, he paints this, this picture by by pointing to just that, the, the brokenness of creation. Look at the, the words that he uses in, in 18 through 25. I mean, look, look at verse, verse 20, for example. He says the creation was subjected to futility. This is a word that we see appear in the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon says that everything is meaningless. It's futile. There exists in this creation, in this world, a futility, a meaninglessness that leaves us empty if we pursue things of this world. Or to put it another way, creation is unable to fulfill its God-given purpose. It is grasping at the wind and failing because it has been subjected to futility. And then he says again in verse 21, creation is in bondage to corruption. I mean, bondage, we, we know from Paul's writing, bondage is a slavery word. And he says creation is enslaved, not to any one master, not to any one king or prince, but it is in bondage, it is enslaved to corruption. And not sort of the political corruption that we so often associate with that word, but that word could also be translated as decay. Creation decays. It is enslaved. It is in bondage to decay. 
Nothing lasts forever. That's what our, our children taught us already this morning. Nothing lasts forever. Feelings fade, things break, plants and trees die, disease withers, bodies grow weak, and ultimately all things die. And then in verse 22, again, Paul says, creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth. If you've missed the picture so far, surely verse 22 will give you that image. Because it's not just that things die, but when they die, it hurts. We are not numb to things decaying. No one is. If it were, funerals would not be as sad and as horrible as they can be. When things die, we grieve, we hurt. Children cry when their favorite toy breaks. There is a sadness that comes during the winter months because we are surrounded by the death of our plants. We mourn when we lose our loved ones to sickness and death. You see, we do not and we cannot pretend that this brokenness does not bother us. It does. It wounds us deeply. And Paul says that we are not alone in this feeling, but that all of creation, the entire natural universe that God has made, this creation groans alongside us as it suffers and dies with us. And so when Paul in verse 17 says, provided we suffer, what he is saying is that that we are our fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer, he is saying we are, we are called not to be removed from this world of pain and tragedy and suffering, but to endure it and even to embrace it. And what Paul is saying is that everything, when it comes to suffering, we're talking about everything from broken toes to broken hearts, from lost keys to lost children. From dead plants to dead spouses. That everything that comes as a result of living in this broken world, this is the suffering you, believer, are called to embrace, to endure. I I like watching survivalist shows. It's been a while since I've been able to watch them. I'm not talking about survivor. I mean true survivalist shows. Where, where people separate themselves from the rest of society and they live on the earth, they live isolated and alone. And it's, it's always interesting and unique to watch how they survive and how they live and the things that they, they just know to do. But one of, the things that, one of the things that stands out about the people that are always on these shows, the people that always choose to live this way, so cut off and so separate from the rest of the world, is that most of them have chosen this lifestyle because of some suffering that they have experienced. Broken homes, abusive parents or spouses, substance abuse. I mean, they've, they've lived a hard life and they've had enough of it. And so their, their solution is to escape to the wilderness. That with the mindset that if I can just get far enough away, then I can essentially get far enough away from that suffering too. And it's easy for us as Christians to, to try and embrace this lifestyle. Now, I'm not saying any of us are, are going out and living in the middle of nowhere, but, but we do 
tend to avoid and, and step away and insulate ourselves and protect ourselves from suffering. Don't we? But this attempt at escape doesn't work. It doesn't work for the survivalist shows and it doesn't work for us either. It never does. Because you will never be able to escape the suffering of a broken creation while living in the midst of a broken creation. And if there is any example for you to follow, if there is anyone to say you should be like this, it must be Christ. Consider for a moment how Christ embraced suffering. Before coming to our world, he lived completely apart from it. He had not tasted suffering. He had not known grief. He had not known brokenness. He was perfect and holy, righteous, unique, and set apart, removed from us and from our world. And yet, he did not choose to remain there. But he willingly entered into this world of brokenness. So that he could endure suffering. Jesus knew what it felt like to be hungry and tired and sleepy and cranky. He knew what it was, what it felt like to, to lose a loved one to death. He knew what it was like for his body to get sick. And all of this, he did not keep himself removed from suffering, but he willingly enters into this broken world and endures suffering with us and for us. Christian, you are not called to escape suffering in this life. God's plan for your life is never to save you from suffering, but it is always to save you through suffering. And that is why Paul says we are heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Christ, that we may also be glorified with him. And so while that may answer the, the what of suffering... It fails to answer an important question that we so often ask when we suffer. Why? Why did God give me cancer? Why did God take my child away? Why did God bring this horrible tragedy to my life? Why does he allow me to suffer in this way? Why? And you've probably asked this question yourself or you've at least heard someone ask it for you. You see, it's so easy for us to feel outrage over suffering. I mean, how many people refuse to believe in God because of some suffering they've experienced that they believe to be at His hands? But what if I told you this morning that God wants you to be outraged over suffering? What if I told you that God said it's good for you to feel angry when suffering comes into your life or into the life of those you love. But so often our outrage is misdirected. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Look at, look at verse 20. In verse 20, Paul says, for, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So we've already covered that first part, this create, subjected to futility. But let's try to understand... What is meant here? I think first, you, you need to see that creation is not, creation did not subject itself to futility. Someone subjected it. Someone forced creation to break and to suffer. Creation was simply the passive recipient of this action. It is not the cause of it. So second, 
When did this subjection happen? Paul says creation was subjected. When? And to answer that, we really only need to ask one more question. What caused this subjection? And it was sin. We can go back to to Genesis 3 and, and look at the curse that God gave to Adam and Eve for their sin. And it was Adam's sin in the garden when when he and Eve disregarded God's command and they sought to rule over themselves instead of lovingly submitting to his rule in their lives. Sin caused this subjection. And so this subjection began in Genesis 3. But lastly, or third, excuse me, who subjected it? Paul says creation was subjected, not willingly, but by him who subjected it. Well, who's the him? I think we have three options when we answer that question. It's either God, man, or Satan. And while I think any of them could, could potentially work for this answer, I think we have to keep reading. The last two lines in verse 20 give us our answer. Because he says, creation was subjected to futility in hope. Let me tell you, point blank and as clearly as I can be, mankind and Satan do not subject anything in hope. We just don't do it. If we subject anything, it is for our good and for the even the, the hurt and the damage of the thing we are subjecting. God and God alone is the one who subjects in hope. And so what Paul is saying is that God is the one, the only one, who subjected his creation to futility. But he did this in hope. And we'll come back to that hope in just a moment. And the last question we should ask is why? Why did God subject creation to this futility? Why did he choose this path? And the answer helps us understand why we suffer. I think that to further explain and and illustrate this point of, of God being the one subjecting it, you can go back to Genesis 3, maybe use it as your homework this afternoon, and read the curse that God gives to both the serpent, to the woman, and to the man. And when he comes to the man, he says this. The very first words out of his mouth is, Cursed is the ground because of you. God is the one who subjects creation in that moment. He subjects it to this curse because of Adam's sin. And while God was the authority subjecting creation, it was not his action that necessitated it. It was sin that caused it. God is simply the judge executing the sentence for the crimes we committed. And so all suffering is this result of sin. All of it. And the outrage that we feel towards suffering is not meant to be cast towards God. As if he is the one to blame for this. But we are meant to feel this outrage and to embrace this pain, embrace this anger, and direct it towards the sin that broke the world. That breaks us. You see, the outrage that you feel over suffering is meant to give you an understanding, even an outrage over sin. John Piper said, how, how many of us wake up in the morning furious or outraged over our pride? How, how many men wake up in the morning outraged over how they spoke to their kids the day before or their spouse the day before? How many women wake up 
outraged because they didn't get the job done yesterday at work. Or they, they, they were angry at how, how selfish they are, how vengeful they could be. See, we don't, we don't get outraged over sin. We don't get angry over sin. But the same person who refuses to get outraged over his selfishness, you give that man cancer, and you watch the outrage come stealing out. You take our children away through tragedy, you'll see some outraged people. God has subjected you to suffering to allow you to outrage over the effects of sin. To be outraged over the brokenness of this world. But this outrage is not meant to be the end. We rage and we rage and we rage, but we do not rage for the sake of rage. We rage against suffering in hope. And so while this is the horror of suffering, let me show you the hope of suffering. Because this is a passage about hope more than anything else. It is about hope in the midst and in the face of suffering. Hope drips off of the pages of Paul's writing here. Let me, let me show you what I see. Look at, look at verse 19. Paul writes, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That, that phrase, waits with eager longing, it is, it is a phrase that is rich with meaning. It has the connotation of craning your neck so that you can see something that is just barely out of you. Or as one, one commentator put it, it is like standing on your tiptoes to see something that you just can't quite see, but you know is there. And when we put that word together and we, we draw this, we, we come to understand this picture that Paul is painting. Paul is saying that creation, this entire natural world that God has created from one end of the universe to the other, creation is standing on its tiptoes, waiting, longing, trying to see what's coming down the road. What is just out of reach. And the day will come when Christ our King will return and He will restore and redeem this fallen world. But more than that, Paul says in verse 19, creation is waiting not for their redemption, not for their recreation. Creation is not waiting for the new earth to be made. Creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Which means that the entire world is standing on tiptoes waiting to see who are the people of God really and truly. You see, right now, there's a veil hanging over this world, one that blocks the world, one that blocks even us from seeing who truly belongs to Christ. And we can, we can embrace and we can point and we can say, yes, Lord, this, we believe and we belong to your people. And yet, ultimately, we can never know until he comes. We can never know who belongs, who's in, who's out. Who has the faith of salvation? Who has been redeemed? Who has been forgiven? But one day, this will be revealed. And creation is standing on tiptoes, waiting for that revelation. I love this, because we get this so backward all the time. 
I mean, don't we? Every time we talk about the future, every time we talk about heaven, every time we talk about Christ returning, how often do we think and talk about, I can't wait to see what earth is going to be like. I can't wait to see what the new creation is going to look like. I can't wait to see what my life in that world will be like. And here Paul says, no, you don't understand. We are not waiting to see creation. Creation is waiting to see us. Paul says, you don't have to look for the new creation. The creation is looking to see you new. And that is why creation groans today. It groans, as Paul says, in the pains of childbirth. We could, I guarantee you, we could take a, a quick survey of our moms in the room. And we could understand and, and embrace and ask them about the, the pains of childbirth. That, mothers, you know in those moments, as you feel those contractions, as the body and the pain begin to, to take over, you embrace it and you endure it because you know something wonderful is waiting for you on the other side of it. That through this pain and through this, this hardship, through this momentary affliction, there is life to be held in your arms on the other side. It is no accident that Jesus and Paul and so many biblical writers compare it to birth pains. Because that is what creation is in. Creation is in the pains of childbirth, knowing and waiting for that life to finally be born. But until it is, we groan. We endure. We suffer. We are waiting for this beautiful new life. And that is what this world is waiting for. That is what this world is groaning for. That is what this world is suffering for. Paul says the trees know this. The plants know this. The animals know this. The stars and the galaxies know this. And they are groaning in the pains of childbirth waiting waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. But it does not groan alone, does it? We groan with creation for that day, don't we? Look at verse 23. Verse 23, Paul says, and not only the creation. Creation is not the only one groaning here. But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly. That's the same tiptoe word. As we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, these groans may not be vocal. You may not walk around through the, may not walk up and down the aisles of the grocery store physically and vocally groaning because they don't have your favorite bread. Although you might. But these groans are inward. They are the pains of a broken heart, the pains of a suffering soul. And I know that while you may not groan outwardly, I know that you, believer, groan inwardly. Because here's how I know it. Paul says that the, he qualifies those who groan as those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Which is believers. 
If you have the Spirit dwelling within you, you belong to Christ. You are His. And because you have the Spirit dwelling within you, one of the effects that the Spirit brings to your life is groaning. Look at, look at what Paul says we're waiting for. He says, we who have the, the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. And you could read that and say, well, well, Paul, you just said we already had that, that we already have been adopted. So why are we still waiting for it? But all throughout the New Testament, whenever God's word speaks of our salvation, there is this already not yet component that we must understand. That we have already been saved, but we are not yet saved. We have already been adopted. We are already God's children, but we have not yet moved into his home yet. We, are, we, we already belong to Him, but we do not yet live in our new bedrooms as adopted children do. And you see, the Spirit that dwells within us, the Spirit that dwells within you, has given you a, a taste of the life in the world to come, the life in the world that is waiting for you. But it's only a taste. And we move from that small foretaste of eternal glory in one moment where the Spirit fills us and we know that salvation is coming. We know that new life is coming. We know that new creation is coming. We know that eternity and glory are coming. And as quickly as we embrace it and as quickly as we swallow that taste, the very next taste we get is a giant heaping bitter taste of suffering. That's what leaves us groaning. We get a taste, we get a sample, a snack, just a whiff of the eternal glory that the Spirit gives us. Of the life and the peace and the adoption and the redemption that's waiting for us. But then you find that your hunger for these things has just been awakened to new heights. And what you want more than anything now, more than just a taste, you want the full meal. So we groan because we do not have it yet. And so often that small taste of the Spirit seems so short-lived while the suffering of our lives seems endless. And so we groan, wanting more of the life to come, wanting less of this world, and we find ourselves in this waiting game of sorts. That's why we cry out every Sunday as we take the Lord's Supper, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's a groaning. And it's okay to groan, Christian. In fact, it's good that you groan. Because it reminds you that this world is not your home. It is not yet redeemed. Things are not as they should be yet. But we know it's coming. And we groan for it to come quickly. This whole passage is, is one of hope. And you, Christian, were saved in hope. Your salvation, Christian, is tied to hope. Look quickly at verse 24. Paul says, for in this hope we were saved. Already you can see right there. This already, not yet. We were saved, but we were saved in hope for the future. Already, not yet. He continues, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Again, 
same tiptoe word. Paul is calling you believers to stand on your tiptoes in hope. Hope is not just a wish. It is not just a possibility. It is so much more. Hope is certain. Hope is not just possible. It is guaranteed. It's known. And so all we're doing, really, all Paul is calling you to do as a believer is to stand on your tiptoes, knowing what's coming, waiting, stretching, craning to just get a glimpse of it. When's it going to be here? I know it's coming soon. And loved ones, it is so easy to miss this. We can so quickly become... We, we can so quickly allow the, the frustrations and the sufferings of this life to, to block that view, to erase our image from, from what's to come. But even though you can't see it, or, or as Paul says, precisely because you can't see it, we have hope that this suffering will come to an end, that our weak and frail bodies will be remade, that the corruptible will put on the incorruptible. And that even the entire creation will be redeemed. That's hope. And I want to end this, this morning by, by pointing your attention to one verse that I haven't yet spoken of. It's verse 18. It's the first verse of our passage. And this is the, the framework, the, the thesis, if you will, of Paul's section here in Romans 8. What is he really trying to get you to understand and to see and to believe? It's here in verse 18. Why does this matter? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. I don't, I don't say this lightly. Because I know that there are so many of you here in this room this morning that have suffered in ways that are totally unimaginable to me. And while I may not know the depths of that pain that you have felt and endured and maybe even still feel today, what I do know is this. The glory that is waiting, the glory that is coming, the glory that is guaranteed for you is going to make even that horrible, tragic suffering look like nothing more than dust in the wind. That's how spectacular His glory will be. One commentator said, he, he, he said, we must weigh suffering in the balance with glory. With the glory that is the final state of every believer. So what he's saying is we have to put on the scales glory and suffering. And he said, when you put glory that in, on one side of the scale, it is so weighty, so transcendently wonderful, that as it sits on the scale, the suffering of this world flies up in the air as if it had no weight at all. And so, Christian, as you face suffering this week, and you will face it, in whatever form it may take, it may be traffic stops, it may be broken toes. It may be tragedy. Do not lose sight of the hope that is yours in Christ. You are a child of God, adopted by Him to be a fellow heir with Christ, provided that you suffer with Him, that you may also be glorified with Him.
For I do not consider the sufferings of this present time to be worth, they are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And if you don't believe me, then take a look outside at the creation that is groaning, that is waiting on tiptoe to see the revealing of the sons of God. And let us also be standing on our tiptoes, waiting, praying, groaning, crying out, come quickly, King Jesus. Pray with me. God, your, your grace is enough. We are broken, we are hurting and hurtful people. But your grace is sufficient. Father, for those of us who, who suffer, we pray for, not for that suffering to end, but for our hope to be brought to the forefront of our eyes, of our sight, of our hearts and our mind. That in the midst of suffering, we would remember the hope that you have given us in Christ. And that this suffering is not worth comparing to what awaits us in your presence. Be glorified in your people as we suffer. And may we be known as the people who suffer in hope. All for your glory. And all for the name of our King. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Church, as we gather together in, in worship, we respond to the preaching of God's Word by taking communion together. Uh, Ron is at the back. If you need the elements, just raise your hand and he will bring them to you. Um, the reason we do this is it's twofold, I think. And there's probably other reasons for it, but... But one of the reasons we do this is to proclaim the gospel to ourselves, to eat and drink and be reminded of the gospel. That we are sinful, that that sin has been paid. Christ died in our place and he rose again. And he ascended into heaven and he is waiting to come back. And every, every Sunday as we gather, as we eat this bread and as we drink this cup, we are proclaiming his death and resurrection until he returns. That is one reason we take it, and the primary reason we take it. The second reason we take it is because it provides us an opportunity to respond, to, to visibly, tangibly respond to the preaching of God's Word. It's not enough for us just to hear, hear the sermon, to hear God's Word proclaimed, and then live our lives as if we never heard it to begin with. And so as we gather at the table, we are praying and living in light of the Gospel, but praying, Lord, for this, in this morning, for example, Lord, let me not forget the hope that awaits. In the midst of suffering, let me not forget what's coming. And I can think of no better thing to help us in this reminder of hope than to take the table together. Because you see, as we come to the table, believer, you and I come to the table and we are given this picture, this reminder of what's been done for us. You are sinful, broken. Rebellious, wicked, evil, and yet loved. Loved deeply and more profoundly than anyone here could ever understand or explain to you. But it's because the Father loves you that He sacrificed His Son for you. Do not forget.
the body of Christ broken for you. The bread points us back. The cup points us forward. Jesus himself is waiting. He is not drinking this cup with us every week. But he's waiting to drink it new. To drink it in that redeemed creation that this world is groaning for. Jesus too, likewise, is groaning. Longing, eager to take this cup with you, his fellow heir. Come quickly, King Jesus, to the King. And then as the disciples did, when they first took this table together with Jesus, they sang a hymn. And so will we. Our final hymn this morning is hymn 603. In Christ there is no east or west. Please stand. Please stand.